This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. Where we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello and welcome back to Practical for Your Practice. I am Jenna Ermold, one of the hosts of this series, joined today by the fabulous Dr. Kevin Holloway. How's it going, Kevin? It's going well. Thanks for asking. How are you doing, Jenna? I'm good. I feel really lucky to have our guest today, who is Dr. Deborah sure. Glassifer. Yes, I'll say that again. Dr. Deborah Glassifer, who is joining us. How's it going, Debbie? Are you are you here? I'm here. I'm delighted to be with you guys. Yeah, all is good. Wonderful. So good to have you. It is. We're just going to start quickly by having you, we actually have you introduce yourself, uh, maybe just tell our listeners a little about who you are and the work you do and where you're located would be great. Sure. So uh, I am a clinical psychologist. I'm an associate professor um, and clinical psychologist up at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and Columbia University's Medical Center. So I'm up in Washington Heights in New York City. Um and I work here in a research program where we um, are always recruiting people who are interested and eligible for research studies to try to help us learn more about eating disorders and their treatment. Um, and I've been here now for about 15 years. Excellent. Um, well, one of the reasons why we're excited to have you today is we are eager to help our listeners and um, obviously work, we work with a lot of military connected folks um, and we don't have a lot of content on the assessment and treatment of eating disorders and, and eating disorders is becoming an area of um, increased focus with the military as well. So um, thank you again for taking the time before we even keep going, one thing I think is important is we use this term eating disorders, sort of quote unquote, but I wonder right. if you could sort of start us out by describing what is the range of those disorders? You know, what's included in that category? Because I think a lot of folks, their their brain immediately goes to anorexia and bulimia, which are the commonly known ones, but obviously there's sort of this larger group of, of disordered eating under that category. Sure. So um, the most common uh, eating disorder is actually neither anorexia uh, nervosa nor bulimia nervosa, but binge eating disorder. And binge eating disorder is um, really characterized by having a frequent experience of feeling out of control when eating a really large amount of food um, and having that be distressing. Often the eating looks a little bit different, might be faster, might involve shame or guilt. Um, and, and, and this happens with some regularity. People can have binge eating disorder and be in all different size bodies. Um, and that is one of the most common diagnostic categories. Um, 
it shares features that that idea of having a binge eating experience is shared by the diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an eating disorder that um, involves, again, having that feeling of loss of control um, when eating large amounts of food, but also mm-hmm. then um, compensating or getting rid of calories or food in some way in response to those binge eating episodes. Um, and again, this is a pattern that plays out, uh, you know, at least weekly for people with this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, anorexia nervosa is a category where we're thinking about folks who um, are really, you know, sitting at too low a weight, a significantly low weight. They're often quite fearful um, of gaining weight or becoming fat and have uh, a bit of a distorted sense of, of how they look um, or really lack of awareness about how um, just how medically and psychologically serious it is, how many complications can arise from being at a low weight. Um, some people don't realize that people can carry a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, and some of them also have binge purge episodes. But if um, if the person is sitting at that low weight, we would think of that um, as part of anorexia nervosa because a piece of the treatment has to be improving um, improving your nutritional status. Um, let's see. The other eating disorder that involves highly restrictive eating was introduced into our category in the DSM, um, just in DSM five. So it's been around about 10 years and we know a bit less about it. And that, um, is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, shorthand is ARFID. Um, uh, this, you know, it, it can affect adults. It also more commonly affects um, uh, children. Um, and that's really where there's a highly restrictive diet that's causing nutritional problems um, or uh, social problems. But people with this diagnosis are not um, over-concerned about their appearance, about their body shape or their weight. They're simply, for any number of reasons, having difficulty um, taking in enough food um, and then, you know, there are some other disorders that I think are a little bit less researched, which I'll I'll mention just by name, which is pica and rumination disorder. And then we've got our category of other specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, and those are catch-alls, which include things like people who have symptoms of bulimia or binge eating disorder, but maybe not engaging in those behaviors as frequently. Um, It includes a diagnosis called night eating syndrome, um, where people really struggle with um, just what it sounds like, like eating the majority of their calories at the night. Um, And then I do want to highlight a a diagnosis um, or or a category within, uh, within this other category that I think is important for people out there to know about. And that's, um, currently titled atypical anorexia nervosa. And there's some um, very good arguments about whether that is a a well-named condition for the moment or not. But this is meant to capture um, people who are really experiencing all of the same psychological symptoms as someone with anorexia nervosa, and they've experienced a significant reduction in weight. Um, But they're, they're, underweight for their own body's needs and may not be um, 
sort of classically quote unquote low weight if you're using a BMI criteria, but their brains and bodies are in a state of starvation um, and, and weight loss has was involved in getting them there. So I think it's it's really important um, and, and I could imagine especially important for, for military providers to know about. Um, and and there's been a lot of interest in the field in the diagnosis and a lot of research going on. So hopefully we'll know more about who these folks are and what can help them. That's fascinating. I think, like Jenna said, right, many of us who are not as well steeped in the research and, and such hear the term eating disorder and think of like one or two things. And it, it's it's fascinating that there's really a lot of different ways that that, that can present. And as you were describing them, it, it seemed to me like there there were a couple of things that seemed to stand out as maybe some commonalities. And maybe you, you can kind of <laughs> correct me on this a little bit too. Like some feels like there are some that have the... Uh, a feeling of a lack of control and as part of it, some feel like over controlled for various reasons and other ways. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily one way that eating disorders kind of hold together, but there's some kind of commonalities, common features or mechanisms underlying a lot of these eating disorders, or, or I don't yeah. know how you would even kind of think about that. Yeah. So I think um, absolutely you pick up on one really important feature of several of the disorders share um, this idea of an experience of loss of control while eating. Many of the disorders are really um, share a feature, which I think of as like dietary restraint, um, Mm -hmm. which could be cognitive or could be behavioral. So this might be someone having a diet mindset, which for one individual leads to a lot of rule bound eating and a scary drop in weight. And for somebody else leads to um, binge eating episodes, right? But that shared feature of, um, of, of that goal of, of, uh, of cutting back or limiting types or amounts of food. Yeah. Um, and then I think these, these disorders carry a lot of um, guilt, shame, or fear around eating what I would, again, put in air quotes, uh, like outside the rules, whatever those rules are. Um, And, you know, and then like many of our other um, psychiatric diagnoses, in order to actually, right, like meet criteria for these problems, this stuff has to be causing a problem in your day-to-day life. Sure. Um, And with eating disorders, I think, you know, people have a lot of questions often about like what's disordered eating and what's an eating disorder. And we live in a culture where many people diet and how do you know the difference? Um, and yeah, sometimes we're looking for clearly um, dangerous behaviors, right? Like purging, for example. Um, sometimes we're looking for it to kind of get you into trouble where where your weight sits. Um, but also we're looking at like, are are you able to be in your life you know, and do things like, um, you know, uh, participate in a in a family meal at a holiday and be able to be yeah. flexible and eat adequately on a day that you um, have a long flight and you got to find something at the airport. And, you know, that that's what we think of sometimes in our in, in this field around day to day functioning. Yeah, um, you know. And- well, as a follow-up to you, you mentioned the, the, the air quotes, right? The rules, eating within or without the rules. And it made me kind of in my head kind of th- think about the aspect of, of social uh, pressures or expectations or, or certainly, you know, uh, perceptions thereof 
how they impact. And I, I wonder if you could say something about that with regards to maybe how these things hold together or not, how these different disorders might, I don't know, kind of hold together or not with regards to how social influences are, are part of it. Well, I mean, I, I think the social influences are just so interesting. I mean, um, you know, the rates of eating disorders the last couple years, potentially as an exception, have been pretty stable. And these problems have been around for a long time in a lot of different cultural contexts. So whether there was one fad diet or another fad diet, or whether it was looking at videos or, you know, on TikTok or selfies on Facebook or um, magazines from the 1950s, right? Like these things all play a role, but they don't tell the whole story. You know, you you asked about mechanism um, a few minutes ago, and I think it is important to say, like, these are brain-based you know, problems which have some complex relationship <laughs> with our environment. And there are lots of thoughts um, in this field about how biology and the environment um, might might interface, but people have to be vulnerable, you know, biologically vulnerable in the first place. So uh, yeah. whereas un- I would say, unfortunately, you know, we live in a culture where like 99% of people diet, um, many, many fewer than that will develop in eating disorder. Um, So there's something different going on in terms of vulnerability. Um, You know, unfortunately for those who develop these problems, they're very serious um, and they carry a lot of medical complexity um, and complications and risk uh, beyond even the psychological risk. I think that um, that's such an important point. And it's interesting to think sort of back on the history of, you know, what's going on in the world and the race of eating disorders and that they've been pretty stable. And you alluded to this idea that maybe there was a little bit of a shift in the past couple of years. And I'm curious, um, kind of looking at, again, the environment and and uh, things that are going on impacting rates. Um, my And again, I'm not well informed on this, but I, I have some understanding that there, there was an increase in rates in eating disorders over COVID. Um, and I may be right or wrong on that. You can correct me again. But, um, you know, what what was the impact of, of COVID on eating COVID disorders? Had a tremendous impact on eating disorders. So what we saw was worldwide uh, rates of hospitalization and presentation for treatment went way up. Um, and this was especially true for young people, for pediatric and adolescent populations. And it was also quite true for, um, for those with restrictive eating disorders. Um, but, but it really was, unfortunately, like replicatable <laughs> around, around the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a bunch of hypotheses for why this, why we might have seen this increase. So it could be Um, that there was simply a change in resources available. So as outpatient clinics closed or intensive outpatient programs went fully remote, um, that that led to this offset where more people then showed up for a presentation um, for hospitalization. Um, Whether COVID just environmentally, you know, set something off where we're seeing a different severity or an earlier onset, um, or just different numbers, you know, is it's a little bit unclear. Any of these certainly seem possible. Um, 
one of the things I'll just add is, you know, beyond looking at hospitalization rates and, and presentation for treatment, there, there was more of a mixed picture on people's symptoms, like during um, what I call acute COVID, like during lockdown, <laughs> you know? Interesting. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, where many people did unfortunately deteriorate. They experienced, you know, just under the stress, like more binge eating, more hypervigilance about physical activity. Uh, more of a scarcity mindset related to food resources when people were unsure what would be at the market or when they'd be able to, when it would be safe to, to go get food. Um, but there also were people who improved, right? That, that there was something about a structure that supported a normal eating pattern. If you lived, you know, some people living with others had more support and supervision around meals. So so the picture is a little bit nuanced, but but when we look at those hospitalization rates, for sure, something was going on. That's interesting. Um, and I think one of the one of the concerns or one of the, you know, from from talking to some folks in this field is sort of the paucity of of training um, that a lot of our behavioral health care providers, Absolutely. a lot of our health care providers, this isn't an area where they have sort of this robust amount of training or sort of a really well-informed, well-supported and um, supervised. And I think that's one of the amazing things that your group is doing is really trying to close that gap, trying to figure out sort of um, you know novel ways to support providers. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit about what you're working on, um, which, uh, you know, is a, is a training series for healthcare providers to, to do a better job and support them better. Can you, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share it with you today. Um, I'm going to start by answering your question about like why it's so important, you know? Um, I mean, eating disorders, the topic is just not robustly covered in medical, um, in medical training. So, I mean, there've been studies showing, you know, that maybe less than two hours is spent on the, on the topic across years of medical school that many medical schools, you know, um, uh, don't teach much about it at all. That when you look at the level of residency or fellowship, or depending on what the clinical degree is, you know, that next step in the professional journey, um, that people kind of show up. And if they wind up working with someone with an eating disorder, they're, they're not all that comfortable um, because they haven't had much exposure to either the knowledge or, or people with these problems. Um, and that um, that there are downstream effects to this. So when you start to look at generalists who are further along in their career, um, that they're not all that confident in their ability to diagnose a specific eating disorder, to clinically manage the issue, um, or to even, you know, sort of know where to refer, like what what treatment options are recommended. So you know, I'm very fortunate to um, to work with a group, as I mentioned at the outset, that's really interested in um, research and education and filling gaps of all sorts <laughs> um, in this field. And um, my colleague, Evelyn Atia and I got especially interested in trying to like level the playing field so that we could yeah. increase access to, to care, um, regardless of someone's you know, geography and regardless of what kind of training they, you know, signed up for or what school they landed at. Um, 
And so we decided to develop an online um, program, which we called Prepared. Um, and, and we really felt, and we're hardly the only people to feel this way, that like there's an opportunity to leverage where we are with technology today to sure. increase access. And, you know, we're, we're learning in all kinds of environments beyond a classroom this, uh, these days. So we developed this, um, this resource. It's available at a website that's prepared.nyspi.org. Um, it's modular, so it's flexible and brief. The modules are like anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. Um, they cover topics including eating disorders diagnosis, medical complications, uh, risk factors, um, treatment, not how to do the treatment, but what to know about the treatment, um, how eating disorders do and do not overlap with obesity, and, and so on. We tried to make it engaging. We got a lot of, um, you know, we got a lot of feedback from different stakeholders, from students, from educators, from people at all different places in their career. Um, it's got, it's got some quizzes in it. So, so you can sort of check that you're learning and get some feedback from it. And it's got a bunch of resources that are downloadable. So you can go in once, download them and kind of have them for reference for the future. Um, so that, that is the what I'm hoping is the beginning of our <laughs> innovative solution here. And of course, because we're researchers, we don't want to just create the thing. We want to figure out, um, does the thing move the needle? Does Do we yes, actually right. help people learn? Um, do we actually improve comfort with um, working with this population or referring this population or identifying this population. And, um, and, and those studies are kind of underway where we're, we're trying to do some programmatic evaluation in different kind of learner groups in nurse practitioners and nutrition students and medical students and residents and so on. Um, so we're pretty, we're pretty excited about it. That's exciting. I, that really resonates with me. Like I, I, I like we were just saying at the beginning of, of this question at least like a lot of us didn't get a lot of training uh specifically or specialized training around eating disorders or what to do or how to even ask how to assess for or you know be sensitive to the possibilities there and i think in some ways that kind of contributes to this feeling of inadequacy as me as a therapist i don't you know even if i have a client come in with you know some eating disorder symptoms or, or something going on i don't even know what to do right like yeah. I, I don't know what to ask or that's yeah. actually or that's what not the, to say or what, or what not to say right even more importantly <laughs> that's one of the um i think in running through the modules for you i even forgot to list that one there there is a module on assessing which is like what to ask and how to ask it you know and yeah. how not to be afraid to ask it um because right. you, you do need some particular pieces of information and it's not unusual when someone you know will call me about a referral and i will ask them some follow ups about the patient and they'll sort of say oh well i, I didn't i didn't ask that i didn't know right. if i could <laughs> you know and we want people to feel empowered right kind of like um many of us have along the way in our training learned that Asking about suicidality, for example, is important, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and we need to not be afraid to ask that first question or right. follow-up questions, right? Like we actually need to know in order to be able to help. So some of these things, I think, like even tell me a little about your weight history, right? Can feel like very sensitive information sometimes. And yet very invasive or, it's yeah. essential, right? <laughs> we, need uh -huh. to, we really need to understand some of that 
to have some ideas of what might be happening psychologically and medically to be concerned about. Well, and it, you know, like you said, with with questions around suicide, I, I think sometimes we're worried that if we ask it wrong or or whatever, we're gonna we're gonna plant the idea in somebody's head, or we're gonna make the situation worse. Similarly, here, if I'm asking somebody about their weight, somebody that I suspect is already hyper focused on their weight, maybe I'm gonna cause some harm here. And and in some ways, I, I think a lot of us, you know, who are not steeped in in this world or, or doing this work worry that we're going to do something wrong we're going to hurt somebody we're going to mess things up and and so in some ways i'm going to i'm going to ask you for for some examples here but one of the features we've been doing in our our show during this season is asking all of our guests about kind of missteps when did things not go exactly as planned or went sideways or you know maybe maybe you messed up and you and you kind of resolve that we've been calling it confessionals you know just kind of telling the couple some stories of and, and, and with the purpose of normalizing that we don't have to be perfect right like normalizing the idea that that we can we can do stuff and we can do things that are that are good and we can learn from those missteps and res, you know, kind of recover from them so i wonder if you yeah. if you'd be willing to share with us maybe some confessions I'm, I'm happy, about working with i'm happy to yeah. share some of those yeah i think you know uh, first before i confess you know i'll tell you just in general when asking about someone's weight right you want to be mindful of your own potential biases or assumptions absolutely one of the things i've learned in doing this work is like we we really don't you can't know unless you ask right, right. um and you just really want to ask in in kind of a neutral tone if you're not um a medical provider who would be obtaining weight right just tell me a little bit about you know when did you reach your adult height and tell me a little bit about your weight history and how you felt at different you know at different um uh, steps along the way and what what behaviors have corresponded with different um, ranges for you if the, if the person's had um, a bunch of ranges and that would be kind of your your opening bid you know my um my confessions around this are uh really really have to be as a provider who is a specialist and so a lot um, of the care that I provide for um eating disorder patients involves some type of weight monitoring. And there, there are good questions being asked in the field about whether that ought to be blind weights, meaning, you know, the patient, you know, when and how to talk about what's happening with weight with the patient um, versus open weights. Um, I, I have been raised here by a group who, for different reasons, not totally worth going into, does, does it in an open manner. Um, mm -hmm. And evidence-based practice is, is obtaining this information at every appointment. And there have been so many mishaps along the way <laughs> in monitoring people's weights because things happen, right? So I, right. Um, I have had a, a patient step on a scale that um, turned off the moment she stepped on it. It was a digital scale oh. and it just like oh, wow. broke. Right. And here is somebody who is very afraid. You know, this happens to be a, a, an underweight individual, very afraid of becoming fat. She's engaging with me around improving her, oh, her weight and nutritional status. And she steps on this scale, scale and it and it turns off. She right? breaks right. it in her mind. Um, right. Yeah. I... And it became a moment where um, actually something about it like broke through to her. It got it got a smile. We were human in the moment. And I said, clearly, 
clearly I didn't check the battery, right? Like, (laughs) you know, here we are. And let's talk about like that fear and what do you actually know is true right now? Um, And how do we live in the reality versus the fear? And also with the flexibility that, um, you know, okay, this week, we're not going to have this information. How are we going to roll? How are we going to not let it impact your, um, moving forward in, in the ways that we're going to talk about this session. Um, we, we also now in doing telehealth treatment, um, we sometimes have people have a scale at home that sends us the readout of, of their weight. And, um, and that's introduced a whole other range of I can imagine. things that can happen. So we've had, for example, you know, um, some point younger brother steps on the scale, right? And we get like a read that's totally different. And then you could come into the session like thinking, what what's happening here? You know, I right. really need to be open-minded and kind of get the information. Um, always when we're collecting information in this way, we're we're helping people to tolerate that we nobody lives life at any one number that if I need you to step back on it for any reason, the number is probably going to be different than three seconds ago, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's mm-hmm. actually, there's something therapeutic in there. So I feel like when I was in graduate school, I had, um, I had one teacher who used to talk a lot about grist for the mill. And I feel like there's a lot of grist for the therapeutic mill um, that occurs when you're, right. when you're doing that piece of, of treatment. For sure. And, and again, that's, that's unique to this, um, realm, right? Like that's not something many providers have experience with, but um, love that as an example of something that can go sideways. It's been interesting. A few of our confessionals have had to do with telehealth and unexpected things that kind of came up. And as we really tried so f- to, to pivot so fast um, and mm-hmm. meet needs, right. you know, sort of these unusual things came up that the field had to grapple with, which is wonderful. I mean, I think we leaps and bounds uh, were certainly made I during mean, this time. There have been fantastic opportunities with it yeah. in eating disorders treatment as well. We're able to see what food somebody has in their kitchen. Right. Like, yeah. or, the environment. Exactly. Or what their setup is like, where's their, where's their, um, do they have exercise equipment? Are they, you know, are they sitting or standing? Um, for the is, there, is there exercise equipment next to the bed? Um, yeah. Is the yeah, setup for, you know, in New York city, we live in small apartments. Well, if you um, are at risk for binge eating, right. And, and you're like right next to your fridge all the time. Like that's, it's it's like important to see people set up to help them think, you know, behaviorally about how do we, how do we work with this? So it's had lots of, um, as you said, I think there's been lots to learn and the things that, in the things that happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, all all clinicians should be expecting things to happen, you know? And we need to adapt and overcome um, exactly, for sure, exactly. which it sounds like, which it sounds like you did in your really great example. So thank you for sharing that. We are going to, as, as always, we also like to wrap up our episode by giving our listeners what we call actionable intel, some, some things that they could do to kind of take what we've talked about or some of the resources we've talked about forward to, you know, immediately try to em- enhance or improve or augment their clinical practice. So do you have some some things you would suggest for our listeners who maybe aren't as knowledgeable in this area, or even for some of those who are, um, that 
steps that they could take to put themselves in a better position to work with this population that really deserves the the highest quality evidence-based care? Yeah. One thing I would ask is that for anyone listening who is um, doing any kind of mental health evaluation, that you just consider adding this category of disorders onto your evaluation list to even remember to ask about, right? Like we always remember to ask about um, suicidality or or self-harm or substance use or, you know, but but let's remember to ask about you know, eating disorders um, and and some of the core features that that I described. I think that that would be a tremendous actionable um, step for people to take. Um, there are some resources that that folks should know about um, that might be worth checking out. Um, so I had given you, you know, the name of the the one that we've developed here at Columbia called Prepared. Um, but there is also the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders, um, which has a compendium of resources, including for healthcare professionals. There's the National Eating Disorder Association, uh, which um, goes beyond healthcare professionals to, you know, coaches and teachers. Um, and and then there are also, um, you know, some some books out there that are kind of the self-help version of evidence-based treatments um, that are worth checking out. So that would be Overcoming Binge Eating by Christopher Fairburn, right, which is really the CBT for eating disorders book that, that we might have a patient read. Um, there's, uh, if anyone listening is working with teens, um, then it might be the book, Help Your Teen Beat an Eating Disorder by Locke and LaGrange, which is all about family-based treatment and the principles for that. Um, and then I'll just say, if you, if you like the question and answer kind of feel, let me point you towards, um, a book called Eating Disorders, What Everyone Needs to Know. And that's just a good resource, um, with questions, with brief answers that can tell you more about, um, the latest in the field, the latest research questions, how to understand different levels of care, um, as they apply to eating disorders treatment. So I, I think I gave you a little bit of an actionable step and then, some resources that can land you with more actionable sure. steps. And I hope that, I hope that suffices. So for sure, we're, we, we will include all of those resources in our show notes too, and, and links where we can, you know, for folks that are listening um, to be able to find those and, and to, to have access to those. So thank you for providing those. And I, we're, we're going to add on to, if it's okay, Debbie, um, uh, a, a couple of webinars that we've done in our CDP Presents webinar series. Uh, we did one last year uh, that was kind of a, a real general overview, and we'll be holding another one this upcoming January. So we'll, we'll at least add the link to the one that's already been done uh, as yeah. a way to And, and knowing that your too. audience is, um, you know, military uh, uh informed providers, you know, when I was mentioning earlier, the idea of adding this into, into intakes, I think thinking about um, also just understanding the culture um, right. that people are in and what Absolutely. expectations around fitness 
um, might be what availability of food might be depending on um, deployment or, you know, what stressors might be around uh, moving that could play out in eating behavior. You you know your population better, better than I do, um, but these are all ways I could think about just adding a question or two about these topics. Um, and you may learn something and, and find a way to help someone that you might not have other otherwise even known was going on for them. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really great suggestions. And I love that you emphasized viewing, you know, putting into context the behaviors within the, the context of our culture, the, the context of the military culture, because I think that does absolutely influence um, there's not many places you are not that you work or are, are part of a team where that's a piece of what they evaluate you on periodically. And there are fitness standards and things like that. So it is it is unique in that regard. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm former Air Force. And in that capacity, I used to do some of our uh, weight management groups and um, had some experiences with a lot of frustrations of folks who, you know, again, the standards didn't really um necessarily uh, give a fair and adequate representation of their level of fitness, of their ability to do what they need to do. So um, right. anyway, so, we can so go I, on and on about that, uh, yes, but the I'm podcast sure is many, wrapping up. many related <laughs> topics, but, but I didn't, yeah, exactly. But, but thank you so That's much. True. Thank, Thank you, you so much again for for taking the time. Um, like like Kevin said, we will definitely put some links uh, to those resources that you uh, mentioned, especially to the prepared website, which is so well done and and it is very interactive, uh, very thoughtful and engaging. So uh, definitely kudos to your team. Um, we thank you all for listening and hope that you will come join us the next time. But for now, we will say goodbye and thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, like, and share. Until next time. <laughs>